Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 235, Alfred's Educational Reforms, also known as Is Our Children Learning? This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' episodes by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for only about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Maddie, Christina, and Amy for signing up already. Now, today we're going to talk about Alfred's educational reforms, and they span a really large period of time. They started around where we're at right now in the story, but they continue for most of the rest of his life. So much like the military reforms, don't imagine all of this happening over the course of one month. This was a massive project that took place over the course of many years, and it also would have occurred in fits and starts. So think about it sort of like talking about the 80s as a general concept, rather than talking specifically about what happened in 1986. When we're talking about Alfred's reforms, We're talking about an era. And let's get to that era. So one of the interesting things about piecing together the life of Alfred is that we find little windows into who he was in the strangest of places. Most kings from this era didn't write much down for us to read. But Alfred did. In fact, he translated entire books, which we will be talking about today. But he didn't just translate those books. He also included his own thoughts in them as well. So, for example, in his translation of pastoral care by Pope Gregory the Great, Alfred tells us, quote, There were happy times then throughout England, and the kings who had authority over these people obeyed God and his messengers, and how they not only maintained their peace, morality, and authority at home, but also extended their territory outside, and how they succeeded in both wisdom and in warfare, end quote. That's a wonderful bit of insight into how Alfred viewed the state of Wessex and the Anglo-Saxon territories in general. I mean, we already know that he was focused on power, but this preface gives us another element to add to our picture of him. Alfred was wistful. He longed for a more peaceful and happy time in history. And the thing that's going to become very clear with Alfred is that he was a reactive person. Much of what he did wasn't really visionary. He didn't so much see things coming on the horizon as much as he learned from the things that had occurred in his life, and he sought to correct them. And this paragraph shows us a man whose life had been dominated by war. In his lifetime, the English people had come perilously close to losing all of their kingdoms. And now, they were holding on by a thread. But Alfred knew that it wasn't always so. And he was looking back to days where the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms were dominant in the region. And it sounds like he was looking back with a sense of loss. It's a very human moment. But the most important part of this excerpt actually comes at the end. When Alfred talks about how the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms of old succeeded in both wisdom and in warfare. That's a vitally important lodestone for us, because from our modern perspective, we might be tempted to see warfare and wisdom as separate and distinct. But in the time of Alfred, intellectual wisdom and success in warfare were deeply connected. The success of a king on the field of battle was a manifestation of his wisdom and righteousness. The temporal was a reflection of the spiritual. 
As Dr. Rory Naismith pointed out to us earlier, even the purity of the coinage was seen as a reflection of a kingdom's spiritual health. So war, economics, spirituality, these were all one and the same in the time of Alfred. And that's an important aspect of deciphering what he was up to and why. I mean, thus far, he's tackled economics, having reformed his currency and introduced the cross and lozenge style of coin into Wessex in the mid-870s. And around the same time, he also worked in concert with King Cheowulf II of Mercia to issue joint coinages to, once again, reform and standardize their currencies. We also know that he was working on warfare. He hadn't just won his kingdom back. He began to reorganize his military, and he instituted kingdom-wide construction projects. Burrs, bridges, and roads were being constructed all throughout Wessex. And the roads actually were quite interesting, since they were being constructed within the burrs, with the intent of enhancing the effectiveness of the furred. The thing is that the defenses of these burrs needed to be able to hold out against an attack for at least a day. I mean, that's how long it would take for a garrison from a neighboring burr to reach them and open a second front against the attacking force. And that was a problem because the Danes had proven to be quite sneaky. And if they could successfully stage a surprise attack from the flank when the Ferd was on the other side of town, well, all of these defenses could be for naught. What Alfred needed was a system that would enable his troops to move quickly from one side of town to the other or to any other part of the wall for that matter. And so it was decided that they would construct a wide street straight through the city from one end to the other. And then along this street, running perpendicular to it, were smaller roads that would lead to other stations along the wall. Merkel called the wide central street a high street, though I'm not sure if that naming convention would have been uniform throughout the burrs. But the idea behind it was sound. By using this network of roads, his troops could move quickly all throughout the Burr. It's thought that Alfred might have lifted this idea from one of the many Roman-style settlements within his kingdom, as the format was very similar to how the Roman settlements were arranged. And as for why he did that? Well, it's all too obvious, isn't it? Alfred had spent most of his life embroiled in one form of warfare or another, and he'd seen the strengths and weaknesses of a whole variety of fortifications, and he'd seen it from both sides. And what he had learned is that if his kingdom was going to survive a future invasion, they had to improve their defenses. So even with the construction of roads, Alfred was firmly focused upon the safety of Wessex. So he was tackling economics. He was also tackling warfare. And that left one more task. Wisdom. And this was no laughing matter. It was the famed scholar Alcuin, the Northumbrian who served as a personal tutor to mighty Charlemagne, who first determined that the Scandinavian threat was due to the lax morals of the Anglo-Saxons. That, due to their behavior, God had withdrawn his protection. Consequently, until God granted his grace to the Anglo-Saxons, the people who Alfred was now calling the English, well, until that bond was re-established, they would be in great danger. And reforming that bond was Alfred's job. After all, starting with at least his grandfather, the West Saxon kings had adopted the Carolingian model of rule. It was the king's duty to save the souls of his subjects. And Alfred was pretty sure he knew how to do it. While Alcuin had largely blamed God's wrath on monks who were lazy and partied a bit too hard, 
Alfred had a different idea. He came to the conclusion that it was because the Anglo-Saxons, well, at least the ones who mattered, which meant the nobility, well, God was angry because they were illiterate and ignorant. And that is certainly something that Alfred would have had firsthand experience with. He spent a lot of time with nobles. And even Alfred was illiterate in his early years. And while he did overcome it, the fact that this even happened to him was something that bothered him for the rest of his life. So here we have another example of how Alfred's reforms tend to flow from things that happened to him and that he had personal knowledge of. So, while Alcuin saw the Viking attacks and basically said to the monks, Come on, I'm from Northumbria, so I know what you drunken maniacs are like. What did you think was going to happen? Alfred looked at the attacks of the following century, the 9th century, and determined that it was because his people were completely disinterested in education and wisdom. And as a result, until he fostered a hunger for knowledge and piety, all of his work on economic and military matters would be for nothing. For the good of the kingdom, anyone in a position of authority within Wessex would need to rigorously pursue knowledge and wisdom. And I think we can all agree that's a solid goal, but there was one big problem with it. Most of the people who held offices in Wessex were illiterate, which meant that they couldn't read any of the books that Alfred hoped would give them that wisdom. So Alfred decided that anyone with any sort of title, whether it be ecclesiastical or secular, would have to learn how to read. That was job number one, getting these guys to pick up a book. But there's another problem here. While his nobles probably had many fine qualities, they were lazy students who felt like this wasn't something that they should have to do. Reading was something that the clergy did and that the monks did. And while the nobles could see the utility in it, it just wasn't something that a noble did. Nobles went hunting. Nobles rode horses. Nobles occasionally pissed their wives off so much that they joined nunneries. Nobles did a lot of things, but typically, reading wasn't on that list. And besides, reading's hard. And as a consequence, Alfred's plan to get them to learn how to read was a bit like trying to convince a bunch of high school football players that they should spend three hours a day learning how to knit. It really wouldn't matter how much you told them that knitting is kind of soothing, and that due to climate change, they might really want a nice warm scarf in winter. All you're going to hear in response to your request is likely followed by knitting needles being thrown across the room. And that's basically the same situation. Reading was uncool, and Alfred needed to fix that. Luckily, Charlemagne had already tackled a similar problem over a century earlier. And given how well-read the King of Wessex was, and how his family regularly cribbed from the Carolingians, I think it's a fair assumption that he was aware of what was done in Francia. And so, Alfred ordered that his court would become a center of learning, much like Charlemagne had done. Scholars from all throughout Britain and the continent were sent for and invited to court. Among the recruits were Bishop Werefurth of Worcester, Grimbald of St. Bertine in Francia, and John of Saxony. But notably, it was during this period that a monk from St. David's in Wales was drawn to the court of King Alfred. His name was Asser. And much like how Alcuin had become forever linked with Charlemagne, Asser and Alfred would form a similar bond. In many ways, Alfred owed his greatness to Asser as much as he owed it to his own actions. And we'll talk more about Asser in a future episode. 
But for right now, the main focus is upon the school that Alfred was building in the model of Charlemagne. By bringing so many learned men into his inner circle, the hope was that scholarly thought and courtly life would become one and the same. But there still were several hurdles to overcome if they were going to have a chance at getting past the rank uncoolness of being a man of letters. And the first one was linguistics. Most books were written in Latin, and Latin wasn't a language that was generally spoken by the Anglo-Saxon nobility. They spoke Old English, and as anyone who's tried to learn a language later in life can tell you, if you miss that critical window in childhood, learning a new language can be really difficult. Now, Latin was the language of scholarship in Western Europe, and historians suspect that Alfred's ultimate goal was fluency in Latin among his nobility. However, that goal would have to be triaged, because right now, his nobles couldn't read anything, and they didn't want to read anything. So the first thing he needed to do is get them to at least pick up a book, and that meant that he needed books in the language that they already understood, Old English. And so, Alfred's new scholarly court wasn't just making knowing things look cool, it was also actively working on translating selected books into Old English. That meant that the scholars who were brought to Wessex were creating a new body of translated manuscripts on the orders of Alfred. That's a bigger deal than it might seem, because functionally, what Alfred was doing was bringing state-of-the-art knowledge to his people. Not all the people, actually a very small slice of his people. But with these changes, knowledge and wisdom was no longer something that was restricted just to the ecclesiastical members of his kingdom. What Alfred was pushing for was actually a radical move for Wessex. And he wasn't just sitting on the sidelines while this happened. Alfred himself decided to get involved, with, of course, the help of his new advisors. He hand-selected books which he would translate, and he tells us that he picked, quote, those works men most needed to know, end quote. And that's how we end up with those incredible prefaces and little asides that give us a clearer image of how Alfred thought and felt. But this translation project was really effective, because now, rather than trying to convince a bunch of nobles to learn to read in Latin, they could hand the nobles books in their native tongue. And, as Alfred was ever the keen manipulator, those books that they would be reading were hand-selected by him to not just educate his nobles, but they were also chosen because Alfred hoped they would foster that spark of curiosity that would lead them to seek further wisdom and knowledge. Now, he just needed to get them to learn how to read, and then, of course, practice their new skill with those books. The problem, though, was that Alfred's initial assessment was right on the money. His nobles were lazy students. Even when Alfred gave them works that were translated into the vernacular by his own hand, his nobles still had a nasty case of the I don't want us. And we've all known people like that, haven't we? People who just don't want to learn something new. Maybe it's a coworker or a gym buddy. Or, if you're unlucky, a parent. Unfortunately for Alfred, his court was full of people like that. But, this is Alfred we're talking about. He faced off Guthrum with nothing but a swamp and a few buddies. He wasn't about to buckle in the face of a few recalcitrant jocks. And this is where those governmental reforms we talked about a few episodes back were once again paying off dividends. Because all power flowed from Alfred. 
by weakening the Witan, and by consolidating power to him and his family, there was really only so much that the nobility could do to challenge him. I mean, sure, they could whine, but Alfred was the final word on the matter. He had the ultimate authority in Wessex. And he made that fact painfully clear with how he handled the anti-education insurrection within his own court. Asser tells us that Alfred threatened to take the titles, and presumably the lands that went with them, from any noble, quote, who neglected the study and application of wisdom, end quote. So he was saying, I'll take all your stuff if you don't sit down and start studying. And after hearing that, Asser tells us that almost all of the eldermen and thanes of Wessex, quote, who were illiterate from childhood, applied themselves in an amazing way to learning how to read, preferring to learn this unfamiliar discipline, no matter how laboriously, than to relinquish their offices of power, end quote. Yeah, I bet they did. And this pronouncement gives us a window into what Alfred was doing. When Alfred introduced scholars into his court, he was making it clear that his nobles would be expected to take an interest in scholarly pursuits. But with this threat, Alfred was doing something so much more. He was shifting the culture of Wessex once again. Prior to this change, the pursuit of wisdom might have been seen as a righteous exercise of power. And that's great. But now, thanks to the threat that Alfred leveled, the pursuit of wisdom was a precondition of getting power. Do you see the difference there? He wasn't saying good nobles should be wise and knowledgeable. He was saying you must be wise and knowledgeable if you want to be a noble. That simple shift changed the incentive system for the entire power structure of Wessex. And for Alfred, this was all for the greater good. He was looking to do all he could to protect Wessex, which included currying favor with the Almighty. But Alfred was handling the matters of scholarship in the same way that he was handling military matters and his government. He was simply telling his subjects what they would do, and then using his incredible powers that he granted himself to enforce those actions. And if we saw this today, many of us would probably call this a benign dictatorship. Alfred was molding Wessex into a shape that pleased him. And luckily, it was something that was ultimately good for the kingdom, so we generally see this as a positive thing. But given the extraordinary powers that he seized upon returning to the throne, this could have just as easily gone the other way if he wanted it to, and we could be looking at a tyrant instead. But this was all in line with how Alfred viewed his duty as king. He was a shepherd for his people, duty-bound to lead them to godly and prosperous lives. And conversely, his subjects were bound by the laws of God and man to do one thing. Obey. And speaking of laws, that was another area in which Alfred was looking to expand his understanding and take actions that would hopefully lead his kingdom to a more righteous footing. So, as if he wasn't already busy fighting ships of Vikings, organizing his military, recruiting scholars, translating books, and pushing around his nobility... Alfred was also looking to reform his legal code. So he studied the laws of Athelbert of Kent, and Inna of Wessex, and Offa of Mercia. And he was searching for guidance on how to best create a just code of law. It looks like he also might have looked across the channel for a few ideas as well. In the end, he was picking bits and pieces from all over the place. Though apparently Alfred really liked the laws of Inna because he copied those in total. Or maybe since Inno was a king of Wessex, he was just looking to form some sense of continuity with the past. It's hard to say. 
But whatever the reason, the code that Alfred was building was cosmopolitan. In fact, it even included something that had never been seen before in the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. It was a Carolingian custom that he might have picked up from his studies, and it was also his very first law. Alfred mandated a universal oath of loyalty that must be sworn by all of his subjects. That was rule number one. Now keep in mind that this code of laws, what was called a dome book, dome was the old English word for law, well, it wasn't completed until 893. So this was after he was already quite powerful and it was also late in his reign. And yet Alfred was still looking to burnish his authority. And actually, before you even get to that oath of loyalty, Alfred was already making the case to his subjects of why he should have that authority. Because Alfred's domes don't begin right away. He doesn't just start out with the oath or that fine of 120 shillings for sleeping with nuns. No, Alfred had something else he wanted to handle first. So if you open up his dome book, the first thing you'll read is the history of Christian laws. We're talking about the Decalogue, the laws of Moses, the apostolic letters, the synods. And then finally, after you get past all of that, you get to Alfred's own laws, which included important things like the rule that says if your tree accidentally falls on a man and kills him, that tree now belongs to the man's family. But before we get to that all-important rule, first it starts with a rundown of Christian law. And actually, there are some pretty good things in there. For example, judge thou very evenly, judge thou not one dome for the rich, another for the poor, nor one to thy friend, another thy foe. That's a solid law. And it was an elaboration of the law written down in the book of Exodus. So there were some solid rules that he wanted to include. But by creating such a detailed biblical preface to his dome book, Alfred was framing the new laws of Wessex, his laws, as being part of a legal genealogy that went all the way back to Moses and the burning bush. He was telling his people that these laws were the natural descendants of God's own law. That's a remarkable move. Alfred was basically marking himself as the heir to Moses. In fact, even the number of chapters reinforces this imagery. Alfred's code had 120 chapters, not 119, not 121, 120. And that just happens to be the age that the Bible says Moses lived to. It's also the number of people that the Holy Spirit descended at Pentecost. And if this was anyone else, I might say that was a coincidence. But Alfred was different from most kings. He was very much attuned to symbolism. Consequently, many scholars believe that the use of 120 chapters was done purposefully to link Alfred's rule to the man who delivered divine law to the Hebrews. Now, we've had Christian kings in Britain before. We've actually had a lot of them. But this is the first time that we've seen such an overt blending of Christian symbolism and history into the authority of Anglo-Saxon kingship. Alfred wasn't just a king selected by the Witan. Alfred was acting as God's representative on earth, and he was handing down a new code of law to the people of Wessex. And now, thanks to his educational reforms, his nobles would be able to read those laws. Hopefully. This entire sequence of events is nothing short of amazing. And what Alfred was doing was entirely in keeping with his concept of rule. This was his job, and he would drag his people out of ignorance whether they wanted it or not. We don't need no education. 
If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at the British History Podcast at gmail.com. And you can also join us on Twitter. We're at British Podcast. And you can find links to all our other communities in the upper right hand corner of the British History Podcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>